Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own and driven by an unknown force to change history for the better. His only guide on this journey is Al, an observer from his own time, who appears in the form of a hologram that only Sam can see and hear. And so Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, striving to put right what once went wrong, and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 63, The Play's The Thing. Quantum leaping through time, I've leaped into an electric chair, gunfights, and a variety of handcuffs. It looks like I finally raided a cushy time. Thank you. No. Thank you. Good morning, Tiger. Good morning. Uh, no, no, <laughs> you gotta stop doing that. No, yes, please. <laughs> Mom. <laughs> My God, Mom. What would Dad say? Oh boy. I can well imagine that this uh, might look a little. Neil, you know, your father has uh, been dead for three years, and not once during that time has he said a word. Don't say it. Say what? That Neil looks a little older than nineteen. I'm not going to be 40. I'm going to be 50. Uh-oh, look at the time. You better hurry. Huh? There's your script. Script? My Danish Prince. Hamlet. I'm so proud of you. The lead in your first New York production. For the people. I know Jane is attractive, but don't you think maybe she's a little um, long in the tooth for you? Men marry younger women all the time, and I think it's a crummy double standard that says that women she's can't do the same thing. What am I here for? September 10th, 1969. It's tomorrow. That's right. Yeah. It is. But Joe, he doesn't go on as Hamlet. The play gets canceled. And there's agents in the audience, so he blows his big break. So it has to be that you're here to make sure he goes on as Hamlet. Gotta be. Well, what about Jane? Does she ever sing again? Sing. Sing. Well, there's nothing about singing in here. You should hear her sing, Al. I mean, she, she, she has a terrific voice. It would be a shame. It would be a waste if she never did anything with it. You're not here to help her. I think he says there's there a 91% probability that you're here to go on as Hamlet. There's nothing in here about a singing career. Nothing. Now, these are desperate times. The competition is fierce. And we're getting lost in the shuffle. I'm sorry to tell you this, but tonight will be the last performance. What? Unless, unless we are willing to make drastic changes immediately. Like what? Do you trust me? Absolutely. All right. We must be courageous. We must be innovative. We must be nude. Oh, wow. Dynamite. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast, everyone. I'm Christopher DeFilippis. I'm Allison Fregler. 
And I'm Matt Dale. And Matt Dale, uh, are you making good on your promise? Are you, in fact, nude? I have been nude <laughs> ever since we recorded the last episode, which has which has made my office job a little uncomfortable for other people. But it, they don't understand the importance that I place in this podcast <laughs> and uh, and the importance of staying in character. So, yeah, I, I'm a little chilly. I will say that. Yeah, it's got to be, what, October in the UK? It's got to be freezing. Yes, it's like a Canadian summer. <laughs> I have to think you've become something of a minor sensation around the office. <laughs> no, no, they, they know me. This It's not that much of a surprise. <laughs> Were they smelling your insanity? Or? Ew. Uh, <laughs> I thought I'd set the bar too low, but no, you've, you've managed to knock it down. I was just kind of... Smelling Hamlet's insanity. I thought so. Yes, that's right. Do it. Now use the words. Ha ha ha. Smelling the mm. insanity. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Mm. If only you'd smelled like that in rehearsals last time. Mm. We might all be nude <laughs> at this point. Nude. Oh my god. That guy, like, <laughs> just that delivery was so good. Perfect. I've seen him in like one or two things afterwards. I'm like, oh, it's that guy. It's the nude guy. <laughs> the thing is, I, I don't think I've seen him in anything else, but he just reminds me, and I know it's not him, but he reminds me of Vigo the Carpathian. <laughs> it makes Ghostbusters 2 very difficult. He's kind of like Vigo blended with, with the Peter McNichol character. <laughs> yes. But either way, it puts a whole new spin on Ghostbusters. The guy in the painting leaping out and telling everyone to be... <sighs> Nude! Nude! <laughs> well, we have yet to give this episode a proper introduction. Um, obviously, we're talking about The Play's The Thing, the season four episode in which Sam tries to help a middle-aged woman fulfill her dreams. Or I think that's what it's about anyway. But before we get into my impressions of the episode, who wants to go first on this one? Allison, Matt, who's got some some initial thoughts about the plays, the thing? Yeah, this is a, um, I, I would say it's an episode where Quantum Leap is very comfortable where it's at. It's a nice episode, a nice comedy episode. You know, you watch it, it's like, yeah, all right. Yeah, I think that's that's a good summary. I, I find it, this is a very quiet episode. No one's trying to kill each other. There's no <laughs> there's no people of colour that are being repressed. There's no uh, questions about homosexuality. There's, there's no big moral messages being discussed. And yeah, it, it's, it's about a couple in a relationship that some people don't approve of. I, I don't think Quantum Leap ever gets this small, which isn't isn't a bad thing. It's just uh, I don't I don't think since they were trying to stop uh, the censorship of rock and roll, have the stakes been so low bar? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I I like this. I I didn't quite get it uh, when I first saw it. Uh, I was just checking back on just before we start the record on the UK air date. I I was twelve when this aired. Uh, so I, I was 12 when, when I first saw this. So I got to admit, I was looking at, at Sam. I, I know he's leapt into someone younger, but I was looking at Scott Bakula and, and the actress uh, playing the female lead and just thinking, eh, these, these are a couple of old guys. 
Yeah, whatever. Uh, <laughs> I, I have I have also checked that Scott was 35 when he recorded this, so he was younger than I am now. But I've always thought of these, yeah, the, the two actors in this as being um, mature. So what does that say about me now? <laughs> Everyone's old at 12-year-olds. 12-year-olds are like, no one lives to 30. Yeah, that, right? that's why I never really got it. So th- this is a show that has, it for me, improved drastically with age. Well, it's funny you say that. I have somewhat of a similar experience. Matt, you were 12. When I first saw this, I was just on the cusp of my 22nd birthday. So it was literally like a week away. So when I saw this episode, um, I'll tell you this, just to put this in perspective. If you had asked me before we rewatched this what my second least favorite episode of Quantum Leap was, in my memory of this one stands out or stood out. Um, and like I said, it's because of the age I was when I first saw it. I was I was a young college kid, and this was just not a good Quantum Leap story mm-hmm. to me because it was dealing with, you know, an older woman who wanted a singing career. And not only that, like of all the bad soft rock hits that I hated in the 70s <laughs> when I was growing up. And it was just like a giant yawn to me. And I remember being active. Remember we were talking about douche chills? I remember having like actively having douche chills watching this with people when she was singing at the end. I don't know why. It just, everything about it turned me off. (laughs) Were you Neil? Did you just like, did you, did you you totally relate to her son? (laughs) No, no. He was, he was a 35 year old asshole. I was a 22 year old Uh. asshole. So, I mean, (laughs) there is a slight bit of difference. It's just that nothing in the episode spoke to me. I thought it was a giant yawn. Yeah, I was similar. Very similar for me. But, you know, upon a rewatch, it is not nearly as bad as I remembered it. And I think it's because I never went back to it. I never had any other fresh perspective on it because I just had such, not a negative reaction, but just a meh reaction when I first saw it. So it's funny, um, Matt was making fun of me before we got on air. And uh, when he learned my age, <laughs> you know, superimposed with the air date of the show. <laughs> Matt, what what did you happen to point out? <laughs> well, the, the, you're basically the same age as the Leapy, so... Yeah, right, you, so. You, you must have been watching this at least somewhat thinking, what would this be like if, if I were dating a 49-year-old? I think that must have given you an insight that I definitely didn't have when I was 12, because the Leapy and Sam and Penny were all old. They were just all old. But for, for you to be in the same age bracket as the Lee P, that's quite a, an interesting take. Not only that, I am now the same age as Jane. <laughs> yes. I am going to be 50 in January. So it's like, yeah. I, you know, now I am that old person that I was just so bored with when I first saw the episode. So you would think that, you know, at this time of life, the episode would be a little bit more relevant to me. Yeah. And upon the rewatch, I'm going to agree with you guys. It, it's it's height. <laughs> you know? <laughs> You know what? Not all of them have to be like high stakes danger. Uh, I didn't dislike this episode, but uh... let me be clear: I actually really like this episode. I, when when I talk about it being small and and not high stakes, I do not mean that as an insult. I think this is a really strong episode. It's just that it's not massive action adventure or high uh, moral drama. It, it's just it's a lovely, sweet little story, and it does speak to me. But sorry, you guys go ahead. You rip it apart. I'm fine. Uh, no, I don't dislike this episode either. I, I like this episode. I, you know, I like occasionally there's ones where it's, uh, you know, no one's trying to kill each other. And it's just sort of like about the music and dancing and uh, mostly the music here. And um, 
You know, um, what I was thinking of when I was uh, watching this, uh, you know, a big aspect of this story is uh, age difference and mm. um, ageism a little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was an unproduced script that's up at the Owl's Place site. Um, I forget the name of it, but it was one that was made for the first season. So it's a little bit wonky, but... It was about ageism, but it took place in like an old folks' home. So it was like, oh, yeah. Sam leaps into an old man in, in a retirement home, and then they're like being mistreated. Uh, a final noble act. Okay, yeah, yeah. and yeah. Uh, there was some stuff about it. Like clearly, they'd written it because they didn't know all of the rules yet of the show, so it didn't quite make sense. And they were like adding some high stakes stuff to it. Like at one point, he's got to escape, and there's guys with tranquilizer darts at the home, and like <laughs> kind of <laughs> over the top. And here, I mean, it's nice that it isn't about like a big actiony thing. Though I do question like what. Neil's plan really is like he's like come to you know find his mom bring what's his face kidnap his mom or and come <laughs> back like what <laughs> pretty, pretty much yeah that was a, a a question that I had too why was Neil so invested in intruding on her life and bringing her back to Cleveland and it points up some of the um like you guys, I think it's a fine episode, but I think it does have some story problems and some character problems. And I think those character problems include some very troubling behavior from both Sam and Al in this episode. And I, I can sort of see why they went with one, but I can't figure out the other one, except for maybe plot mechanics. But we, we can sort of get into that. Mm. But What's the troubling behavior? Yeah, this You want to go right, right, right to it? Yeah, jump right in. Right into the deep end. You've teased us. Let's go. Okay, let's go with Al's behavior in this. I mean, he basically spends the entire episode negating Jane's place in in her life, in the leap, and like being a very stodgy. She's too old. She's too this. She can't do it. You're not here for that. You're here for the leapy. What what the hell was his name? I don't want to say Joe. Joe, you're here for Joe. You're here for Joe's career, not to help this woman try to fulfill her pipe dream. And he was basically being a jerk about it, not not so much like belligerent, but just dismissive. And I was wondering if they were doing that because, A, Al is older, so he might have some, some ingrained prejudices that he's not aware of. And B, it kind of sets up that stodginess that we encounter in the next episode. Hmm. So I, I'm wondering if they're giving you sort of a continuity of Al's old-fashionedness there. And that's why I can maybe forgive the way Al was acting in this sleep. For someone that is so pro-woman and so progressive in everything he says and does, for the most part, all of a sudden, just because this woman wants to, A, be like out and active and have fun and try to have a career – even though she's a certain age, like his age, he's exactly like that, yet he's saying that she can't do it. She shouldn't do it. Sam shouldn't worry about it. He's there for Joe, and he's there to help Joe. And it was just very un-Al to me. I'm not going to disagree with you exactly. <laughs> I'm going to disagree with you a little. I'd, I'd not seen it from that perspective. Um, Al has on several occasions, and it will happen again in later episodes, just flat out been wrong about why Sam is there. And I just saw it as one of those. Yeah. Um, I hadn't seen an element of 
this is why I think you're here and it, it's because I don't think she's capable or XYZ. Just that, yeah, he, he was very firmly of the belief, this is the reason for your leap, single-minded, you fix what you've got to fix, you don't worry about what you've not got to fix, you leap out. Which which he does every week and most of the time he's right and occasionally he's wrong. You know, uh, he's a big fat hypocrite too. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> Sam's like... <laughs> You know, I think it's a real double standard. It's a crummy double standard that, mm-hmm. like, men are mm-hmm. with younger women all the time, and then with women, they treat it differently. And, uh, you know, the age of the actress that plays Tina, she's, like, 30 years younger than Dean Stockwell. Yes. He's yeah. got a super young four-year girlfriend, which apparently is fairly serious, and he's, like, hitting on younger women all the time. So I don't know if they paid enough lip service to the hypocrisy there, but... Um, I think mostly Al was was just providing uh, an opposing perspective like he usually does. Yeah, maybe a little bit of a plot foil just to amp up some dramatic tension. And like you say, Chris, this is consistent with what we're going to see next week, that sometimes Al is a little old fashioned and that mm-hmm. is, is brought up in order to give Sam, Sam someone to bounce against and to say, no, this is the right way to think. This is the way we should be. Right. <laughs> I, d- I did kind of laugh when... <laughs> He's like, everyone should have a mother like that. Oh, I hope she's not your mother. Is like making out? <laughs> mother? Every guy should have a mother like that. That is, if she's your mother. I hope she's not your mother. But that's, again, you can tell it's, it's like the Al, the Al-isms are there. And it's just like, it doesn't make a difference to him that Jane is 50 because he still finds it very attractive. It, it But it makes a huge difference that she's 50, he's 25, and that he's more, um, I guess, concerned with her future than he is with the future of the Leapy. And I guess that speaks to your point, Matt, but it just seemed like Al would be on the side of both of them, hmm. in my mind. That's all. I really liked Al's story uh, about his fifth wife wanting to join the roller derby. <laughs> <laughs> she kept falling on her tush, and she was trying ice skating, and it just wasn't the same. And, <laughs> you know, I like when he, he says, like, you know, it just goes to show that sometimes you just got to, like, give up on, on certain dreams. And Sam's response is so sincere. It is so Sam. What are you talking about? No, you can never give up on your dreams. You can never give up on your dreams. <laughs> is he going to launch into a Disney show tune at that point? <laughs> he's just so sincere about it. Like, there's no cynicism there at all. Like, he's like, no, obviously you have to, like, you have to pursue your dreams. It's, it's just ridiculous to not even try. Yeah. You know what? It's funny, though, because um, I never considered this aspect of it, but that's from Sam's very Pollyanna point of view as someone who is a genius who basically got to do everything he ever wanted to do, mostly successfully, including traveling in time, so that, um, you know, he never had to worry about giving up his dreams. His dreams just naturally came true because of his brilliance and his talents, and I guess maybe because of Al's intervention and helping him, you know, get funding and crap like that. But he did have to fight for it. He, you know, this is very consistent with this character and that he's just like, someone's going to tell me no? I don't think so. Like, people, no, like, people right, called yeah. him crazy, but he kept doing it. He jumped in there prematurely because his funding was being cut off. He's like, screw that. I'm going to fulfill my dream. It's right there in the saga cell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fulfilling my dream, suckers. <laughs> <laughs> Later losers. <laughs> That's exactly what he said at that point. I'm yeah. sure that was in the, the novel Prelude. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
Rewatch the pilot. That's what he's saying. <laughs> Just look at his mouth. <laughs> Instead of Oh Boy on the Leap In, Later Losers was supposed to be on the Leap Out every episode, but they changed it. <laughs> Double middle fingers and then leaves. <laughs> we need some fan art of that. That's so Sam Beckett. <laughs> he's, he's such a wild card. Well, I, you know, I, okay, I can see what you're saying there, Allison. You're absolutely right. And Sam saying you got to hold on to your dreams is great. But I think that his behavior in this episode was absolutely wonderful. It was almost exemplary. Um, but then. Oh. But then. There's the scene in the, what's it called? The cellar, the rat cellar, whatever the, the bar is that, that, they're, uh, that they're always going to where the bad band is playing. Um, he basically, Jane is off somewhere doing something and he's sitting at the table with Ted and Neil. And he starts to bargain with Neil saying, you should, you, you can quote, let Jane stay if you approve of her singing. If I'm going to get up, I'm going to make her sing. And then if you see how wonderful she is, then you, you have to let her stay. And how yeah. about no? Yeah. How about Jane has has agency yeah. and she's not a thing? And go fuck yourself, Neil. Go home. How about that? Yeah, it's true. It does take away a bit of her agency here. Yeah, I, yes. that scene just shocked the hell out of me, and I I can understand it. I can understand even the character of Neil. I think Neil was written for maybe the the current 35, 40-year-olds and older point of view, like the male audience that would maybe have that point of view to give them a sense of uh, stakes in the story, to reflect their beliefs and their values. And I, I, I get why Neil was there. And I don't mind the character, but that whole exchange just left me like, what the hell is going on here? All right, I'll tell you what. If I can prove to you that she has talent, that she's special, will you go back to Cleveland alone? I mean, that scene almost begged like for Jane to come up behind them, say what's going on, and for them to say, shh, the men are talking. Uh, it was just so, so misplaced to me, especially with Sam doing that. Yeah, it is It is a bit inconsistent with um, with Jane's character, too, in that they, they seem to take away her agency in, in a lot of points of the story, but she also seems very strong-willed about stuff. Oh, she's amazingly strong-willed. Yeah. Yeah. I I really liked her. Like she was really quirky and quick on her feet. Like um Ted's there and she's like, "Oh, hang on, our song's playing. <laughs> this yes. is our song. It is now." <laughs> this looks like it is now. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, it was good. And I mean, she was she was a great character from from beginning to end. I really really did like uh the way that Penny Fuller realized Jane. Yeah, they bounced off of each other really well. I really liked that bit where it's, oh boy, oh, you can say that again. <laughs> <laughs> the humor and the chemistry were really good. And I think that Beverly, because this is a Beverly Bridges script, I mean, Beverly knows these characters and she writes them in a uniquely Beverly way. You can always, I, I always thought that I could tell a Deborah script. Now I'm getting to know a Deborah script and a Beverly script because there's just something about the way she has them interact that always cracks me up. And I, I think that she's, how, how many more, uh, Matt, do you know how many more episodes she has after this? So this is the last Beverly Bridges script. Oh, no. She had a couple more, right? Before that? Yeah, so she'd done, she co-wrote The Great Spontini. She did A Hunting We Will Go, Permanent Wave, and Raped. All of those scripts, including this one, I think have like great, varied uh, female characters. Yeah, like she's able to write women so well, and like in in different types of women. 
And I would venture to put A Hunting We Will Go in my top five Quantum Leap episodes mm. of all time. And I said this when we did the episode. I think that Jane Sibbett would have made a perfect addition to the cast if they were looking to bring on a third. Yeah. She just fit in so well with both of them. And she she looks exactly like uh, Al's fifth wife who wanted to be in the roller derby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. And it all comes full circle. We're in the Beverly Vortex. In that border thing. So I, I think that Neil's character took a lot of liberties with his mom. <laughs> like, <laughs> right? Who who just walks into their mom's room uninvited? <laughs> like, doesn't even he didn't even knock on the front door. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> It's just ridiculous. It's like that's the, that's my first note. Doesn't Neil knock? I mean, <laughs> and his wife goes along with it. Like I can't imagine walking in on my boyfriend's mom's room just like happy birthday. <laughs> just, what are you, some kind of prude? <laughs> this, it just even if she wasn't sleeping with someone, like why? It's so weird. Oh, because you know what? You know, she's she's a 50-year-old matron and she's in there knitting. Of course he can just walk in. There's absolutely nothing that she might be able to do that would be untoward or shocking. <laughs> My favorite Neil moment in this episode is one where he actually does nothing. It's where they've just introduced Ted and he says, you know, oh, when this relationship falls apart, I'll be there. And he gives Neil this look that says... I'm going to do your mum. <laughs> and Neil just looks like, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. That's why you're here. <laughs> Go for it. I don't mind if you do my mum. You have a textile factory. Yeah. <laughs> this guy? I don't know. <laughs> this actor? The absolute nothing look in his eyes is just, it <laughs> says so much to me. <laughs> Neil is played by a character actor named Daniel Roebuck, and I can't for the life of me remember what I've seen him in, but both Neil and Ted, who was played by Robert Pine in this, they're both um, really that guy actor. Like, you see those faces and you say, I know I've seen them in a million things, and I can't remember what. And I feel like I've seen Robert Pine in Star Trek at least four times. <laughs> Yeah, he has to have been in Star Trek at some point. What was the pitch that Neil had for Ted there? Like, That's a good question. He's like, <laughs> so I noticed that you're horny for my mom. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to get her to, to leave this pipe dream, come back to Cleveland with me. <laughs> Will you come with me and try and win her over? This is a guarantee that she'll get with you. I know she's a, she has open contempt for you. I think she says, like, Cleveland lost a... She calls him a liar or something? Like, she's not subtle about the fact she doesn't like him. <laughs> you know, when you left, Cleveland lost his prettiest girl. When you left, Cleveland lost its biggest liar. Yeah, there's a deleted scene there that would be wonderful to see. Yeah. The <laughs> what was he to her, though? They just knew each other? I completely missed, like, what their relationship was. I don't think they really established it. They had some kind of history, but like you say, she didn't seem to like him much. Not that that bothers Neil. No, no, it's, he's in the age bracket, so it's fine. It's yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, it's it's just keeping up appearances for Neil, and you could tell that he was so misguided in his freaking sincerity. They had a wonderful scene between um, Jane and Neil towards the end of the episode. You guys remember where she's sitting at her makeup mirror, and he's trying to convince her to come home. Yeah. I think that was like an, an attempt to make him a little bit less of a jerk to show that he does have a sincere wish and desire for her to at least live um, a life that 
he thinks she would be happier in and safer and mm. more comfortable in. And I don't agree with a word of what he said, but I, I, I believed everything that was coming out of his mouth that he believed it wholeheartedly. Yes. And that he only, in his mind, had her best interest at heart, um, as misguided as that was. Yeah, I think that's the only scene where he, he comes off sympathetic, even though you'd like you you don't I mean, I didn't agree with what he was saying, but you at least understand where he's coming from. Hmm. Yeah, and I think it was kind of a, a little stroke of genius for Beverly to put that in because it's a quiet moment between two of the supporting characters that has nothing to do with Sam. You're taking the action away from the lead, but you're giving so much more depth hmm. to um, Jane's story. I think it was needed. Yeah, it was needed because this this kind of cemented a lot of the emotional stakes, I think, in, in that scene in particular, because you can tell this was outside of Sam needing to fix it. This was the relationship between a mother and a son that had somehow gone off the rails that needed to be mended in its own right, not just about the singing, but about, about her entire life. And I thought that was that was a neat scene. I really liked it. And I liked the way it was shot with the, with the double mirror shot for you know for a show where they do a lot of mirror work <laughs> yeah they um they did a similar kind of shot in um in southern comforts but uh, i thought they they did a kind of neat thing in this one where they um they have both their reflections in the mirror like neil's behind her mm, exactly yeah he's a little bit out of focus so it was yeah it was very well put together um i really liked uh a lot of the way that this episode looked um there's some gorgeous outfits and sets in this this episode was a template for Mad Men. I, I swear <laughs> to God, Matthew Weiner watched this, and he should have said, "Get me John Pierre Dorliac." <laughs> <laughs> it was great. There, I mean, like they had um, that set with the piano when Jane's on top of the piano and Sam's mm. playing. Like it, the, yeah, I thought that yeah. looked great. Um, all of her outfits, I, I really loved. She had like this black and white color blocked dress, um, the gold sequin dress that she's wearing at the end. Um, Sam has an all-time look, an all-timer, when he's got his Nehru jacket on, sunglasses mm. in the club, mm. hair styled, full Beatlemania. Beautiful, man. <laughs> his high-collared Dracula jacket at the end. <laughs> he was the mod of mods. That was very mod, what he was wearing. It reminded me of watching like old footage of The Who when they first started playing. I mean, it just said they're very specific. It wasn't a hippie look. It was a mod look. And Jean-Pierre did it beautifully. Yeah, this was like 60s that, that is fun to look at. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of sleazy and, and muddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The only outfit I didn't like in it was the one he wears in the rehearsals with the the red shirt with the pattern and like the stripy pants. I thought that was really ugly. Yeah, but I mean, clothes of the time were tended to be really ugly, so I think you had to reflect that reality as well. But I think that Anna Gunn really uh, cleaned up as a, that 50s housewife with that weird yeah. pill hat that she had on and just... <laughs> You know, everything about it. You could just see her white gloves holding her, her like clutching her bag. <laughs> it was just, <laughs> they made her up really well too. And it's funny to see her so young because most people watching now, I think, would recognize her as Skylar from Breaking Bad. She's fantastic in this episode for someone that Beverly Bridges didn't give her too much to do. There's a lot of focus on uh, on Neil and Jane and Sam. And she's, she's kind of a, a, a supporting, supporting role. But she comes off as very memorable. She does a lot with with very few lines. I think it's because they give her like just enough little bits of personal details to her to make her seem not flat. Yeah, 
And also she's, she's on Jane's side for most of this. And she's just yeah. saying, Hey, she's like a, almost like a voice of reason. Though she is sort of just on the sidelines though. Like, uh, yeah, maybe we should leave her alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. Maybe this isn't such a bad idea after all. Let her stay and, you know, have a life. <laughs> um, what, what's wrong with that? You know? She took a role that was supposed to be, I guess, sort of a mousy housewife and turned it into an ally for Jane, even though it was a roundabout ally. And and I enjoyed sort of the evolution of her character as small as it was in the piece. Yeah, they had le- that nice little scene where um, she goes to talk to Jane in the bedroom, <laughs> again in the bedroom, and they're, they're, she's talking about being gifted watercolors, and um, so they have a nice like little like bonding moment there. Yeah, and that was another good thing about the script is like nobody was at each other's throats. It wasn't like two-dimensional strawman of um, this is my obnoxious son and this is his shrew of a wife. And, uh, you know, it, they had an, an actual rapport between them. You could tell they were family who loved each other. And I know I keep maybe hitting on that, but it just seemed to me that that was the heart of the episode was – trying to grapple with this difficult but loving relationship. Or I should say loving but difficult relationship. Yeah, the thing that seemed secondary to me in this episode was the play portion. You know, the play is the thing. That whole storyline, it was like an ill-fitting B-plot, was it not? It was It was fine for, for what it was, but it seemed a little bit disconnected. I agree. Like, uh, it, it, I, you almost forget that a play is part of it, even though that's, it is a big part of it. Um, they also had like they're they're running through some of the cliches. Like it feels a bit like repeating a lot of things that they've done before. Why is there always a horny theater girl trying to get in Sam's pants? <laughs> always. Maybe Tommy had to punch up this script. Maybe that, that could be. This it. is constantly so. <laughs> happening to him. <laughs> Clearly, this is what actresses are like. What do you think goes on in dressing rooms? <laughs> yeah. <Allison? laughs> This is just a real world, Pollyanna. <laughs> Who surprises not only their cast, but the audience with a nude play? <laughs> Who's like, we didn't let them know. And then like, they come out and they're nude and everyone's fine with this. And then the cast starts stripping Sam down like, this is fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was a little bit. Can you imagine like, if this was a woman, like, why would this be acceptable? Why is it okay that they're stripping him naked? <laughs> well, I mean, number one, it's a Beverly script, so we're going to have shirtless Scott on overdrive because that's <laughs> yes. just that's just in her wheelhouse. So, I mean, he has, I think, as much shirtless time as shirted time in this episode. And you're absolutely right, Allison, but I think this one actually did play for laughs and it plays against Sam's prudish nature. And what I was it's really... It's like they were watching a car wreck. It was horrible, <laughs> yeah. but you can't look away. You can't stop <laughs> what, what, what I was really confused about is why is Sam so reticent to go on stage? Why does he have stage fright? This is the guy who played Mana La Mancha. This is the guy who, you know... He must have Swiss cheesed it. I guess. It was just... To be fair, though, he's naked. No, but this was before, mean before the whole before nude the, thing. Okay, I that, can't go on stage. I can't do that. I can't. Yeah, he seems nervous about just performing. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Which, again, seems uh, repetitious of uh, Catch a Falling Star, but that one was like, it was done better with the play portion. Yeah, because the play was the thing in that one. The, yeah, the play was a thing in this one. <laughs> <laughs> So we're going to rename the episode. The the play's a thing. I love it. 
I love perfect Allison. <laughs> I did love Sam rehearsing and and um, sword fighting the bedpost. <laughs> that was cute. I just like that bit. I also there was there's a line that always stuck with me too that Al says when they're backstage after the everyone strips Sam down and he's like hiding yeah. and his like his fake beard's like falling off <laughs> and then Al's like hey your mustache looks stupid in your beard there <laughs> hey your mustache looks stupid in your beard there <laughs> that made me laugh out loud all three times I watched this I love that that line yeah. that's probably Al's best line looks <laughs> stupid. <laughs> It seems like it was improvised. I don't know. It really makes me laugh. It, it does feel like it was Dean yeah. saying that, not out. Yeah. Knowing, knowing Dean, that was probably something he just threw in. And uh, he did it perfectly. It feels like Scott Bakula ducked really quickly behind that thing to not laugh. <laughs> he says that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'd love to get some insight onto that. I doubt they remember. But uh, I got to think that there were a ton of moments like that that didn't make it on screen. Just having Dean and Scott and, and their patter, you know. There's some bloopers, like there's uh, one blooper set in particular from an episode later this season um, where you can see them doing different versions of a take where Dean Stockwell is like improvising little bits to the line. And like, I think he just keeps making himself laugh. I don't know. They were like, (laughs) (laughs) they were both laughing over it. So I get a feeling like he would take liberties with the line sometimes to try and get a laugh out. And I guess maybe since the writers seem to be so vested in the production process itself, they probably didn't have much of a problem with that because I I I don't think writers really have much of a say when they're performing it, basically. Things like this happen all the time. Like scripts get changed, people change performances, and sometimes it does piss off writers, but... I understand that. But I'm thinking like to have Dean Stockwell ad lib on your material is more of an honor than than a nuisance. (laughs) Well, at this point, they know the characters so well that they could just, you know, add something on. Sure. Absolutely. There was a part in this rewatch where uh, I noticed something I'd never noticed before. And this happened so few times with Quantum Leap. I'm like, ooh, something I never noticed before. I don't know if you guys caught this. So when Sam's in the dressing room backstage and he's uh, he's getting dressed and the talent agent shows up, like he's knocking on the door mm-hmm. and he says, uh, it's Rob Jackson from Rosenfeld and Adam. And Al starts um, putting into the hand link uh, the information. He starts like mumbling to himself and he goes like, Rosenfeld and Gilden. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so they're doing Rosencrantz and Gildenstern, yeah. which is a, a Hamlet joke. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I noticed that. But I know Hamlet, so... Yeah, and and Scott Bakula had his shirt off, so I didn't notice anything. (laughs) You were riveted, Matt. Riveted, positively. Yeah. (laughs) Always by the nipples. Wow. (laughs) You went for it. You went right there, didn't you? (laughs) This is one of those, like, contrived things, too, where, like, someone hugs him and then someone walks in and, like... Not gonna listen. I'm gonna leave. He's cheating. Yeah, (laughs) that was maybe to me the nadir of the episode because you were just expecting some kind of horseshit like that to happen. No, there it is, right on cue. Third act turn. Yeah, it's very the vicar walks in and the young lady accidentally drops all her clothes and someone drops some coffee on the floor and everyone screams and runs around. I need to watch whatever shows you're watching, Matt. What the hell are you talking (laughs) about? 
British farce. Have you do you, have you not seen any British farce? Uh, Monty Python, Faulty Towers. Usually, it's got John Cleese in it when I watch it. <laughs> no, there's there's a particular brand of British farce where there always has to be a vicar and there always has to be someone in their underwear. That sounds like the Benny Hill show to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This just seemed like a repeat of the scene from Great Spontini, though. He's backstage, and then the other performer lady comes in and, like, kisses him, and he doesn't, he's not feeling it, and then the wife or ex-wife walks in, and... Yeah, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of a formulaic, lazy way to introduce tension into the scene so that you can have him running through the city in the fourth act, trying to get her to stay, and putting some, some false stakes into the last bit of the show, like some kind of artificial ticking clock. I think they kind of downplayed some stuff that maybe they uh, they shouldn't have. Like, <laughs> like when Sam's chasing them um, down the elevator, and they're they're in the doorway uh, above the steps, and uh, he's talking to Ted, and he's like, "Yeah, well, if I don't let you leave, or what?" And then Ted punches him in the face, yeah, and he no! just he goes tumbling down the stairs, and in the long shot, you just see Al watching, like, eh, whatever. <laughs> Like, he doesn't care that Sam's, like, tumbling downstairs? Like, nah. <laughs> Old hat. <laughs> this this is episode 63. He's done this 63 times now. It's it's fun. <laughs> He's taken a, a lot of falls. Maybe maybe Dean Stockwell is just watching Diamond Farnsworth like, nah, he's fine. <laughs> <laughs> is this the take we're going to keep? Stop showing off, Diamond. <laughs> It's not a big set of stairs, so I don't. I mean, he wouldn't be seriously injured, but he seems to kind of like face plant it into the stair. I don't know. I'd I would be a little like concerned. <laughs> You're not falling through a bit of porch this time, you know. Come on. And I was wondering why he pulled his punch. I was wondering why he didn't punch the guy, but I guess he figured that he didn't want to escalate the situation. He wanted to circumvent the situation. And even Al yeah. said, you're lucky he didn't mm. give you a flying noodle kick, which is, I guess, where I got that expression. Finally, they said it. Because I've been saying that forever, and I don't remember seeing it on the show since we've started the podcast <laughs> until now. Yeah, was this the origin of Flying Noodle Kick? I don't know. Matt, uh, do your searchable database, please. <laughs> this is going to be loud because I've got a loud keyboard. That's good. So Theater of the Mind. Oh, my audio. No, I'm not cutting any of that out. <laughs> and um, how many uh, times did I use it in foreknowledge? <laughs> you know I've got like a spreadsheet with all the subtitles on, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. So this is, yeah, this is literally a searchable database of everything that's been said on screen. Unfortunately, it doesn't include the novels, but you know, it's, it's good enough. <laughs> well, I do recall that you, you uploaded my novel during the course of one podcast so that you could look for one specific phrase. Yes. <laughs> yeah, true. I have those handy. <laughs> I do believe... Yeah, this is the only time the word noodle is used oh. in the entire series. Oh my god, so. was it only ever once? Holy crap. It's like Beam Me Up Scotty, which was never said. It was said in the animated series once. In the animated series. Uh, mm -hmm. But we can debate whether or not that's canon. Actually. <laughs> Maybe the Quantum Leap uh, animated series, they would have thrown around flying noodle kick. Yeah, like many times. Yes. Many a time. Yeah, I... Only reference to a flying noodle kick in the series. You're lucky he didn't give you a flying noodle kick, you nozzle. But yeah, I, I call it a flying noodle kick all the time as well. I had no idea it was... It's one of those alisms you just think of so much. It's weird that it was only ever said once. Yeah. I need to reprint the book now with that one extra line in. There you go. This <laughs> is the only episode that refers to the flying noodle kick. Immortalized by <laughs> Beverly Bridges. <laughs> uh, you know, I know he means flying noodle kick like... Hitting someone in the noodle, 
like in the head. I think that's what it's supposed to mean anyway. It could also mean like But I always leg. just think of it like he's got like spaghetti arms, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> That's always, that's how I pictured it. I yeah. never thought of noodle as head. <laughs> I think of like spaghetti legs. So we all have the same weird image. Well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> Do, do Americans call the, the head the noodle? Is this a thing? It's a very old-fashioned term. Yeah, it's like use your noodle. Use your noodle. Uh, yeah. Okay. But it's something Al would say, though. It is something Al would Al say. Because Al uses, like, old words so much. Yeah, it's like use your bean, use your noggin. Noggin. No one says noggin. Exactly. Yeah, that was a bean ball ump. <laughs> Americanization of much. It was a bean ball. So... Yeah, Al's got he's got a hat full of those things. But can you guys tell me <laughs> what did 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 you get Al's disdain? It was just an aside, and they never <laughs> followed up on it. But his utter disdain for New York City. Well, here we are on the street again. How come there are eight billion cabs in New York City, and you can never find one when you want one? It's the Bermuda Triangle, New York. Never what? mind. I swear that I saw somewhere that like that Al was born in New York. But this could have been, like, made up for something else, like a a book or... But, I mean, he could also... New York is huge, so he could have utter contempt for the city and still be a native New Yorker. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, uh, it just, uh, yeah, it just struck me as odd that Al would, under his breath, badmouth the city, and then they never, ever follow up on on why or what happened to him there that, that made it such a disdainful place for him. It just struck me as, as as a New Yorker, I noticed that. So, <laughs> aw, uh, I mean, he's maybe he's just complaining to complain. I didn't think there needed to be a backstory there. It's kind of like when, uh, though. I mean, it does seem weird that it seems like he he's been into New York before. I think that in the '60s, when he was there, it was when he was hanging out with his photographer friends from uh, One Strobe Over the Line. But yeah, he has like a line in, uh, this was also an Americanization of Machiko, where he's like, uh, oh, I hate farms. I'd much rather be in Vegas. You know, it seems like he, he likes the city over rural stuff, so. Just not that city. <laughs> it just remains a mystery then. Maybe he just likes to complain. What did New York ever do to you, you stodgy old grump? You taking this personally? No, not really. <laughs> just just another point of conversation. <laughs> you know what I will take a little bit personally and not really personally. It's just one of it's one of my favorite things to look at in TV shows is fantasy New York real estate. And oh my god, Jane's apartment. Jeez, oh <laughs> yeah, Pete. How much was she paying? <laughs> a multi multi-million dollar apartment right there. How much square footage did she have? And even I understand it's 1969. I I, I get it, but that is uh, at least even for the time like a 2 or 3 million dollar apartment. And she's supposed to be like trying to make it out there. Yeah, right. Yeah. So what I'm thinking is that Neil should shut up because he's obviously got some <laughs> kind of sizable inheritance coming to him because yeah. the family's obviously got rocks. So she doesn't oh, need to worry about... She's spending all his inheritance on this expensive apartment. That's why he wants her out of there. And, and her deadbeat boyfriend. That's why she needs to go back to Cleveland to save the, the apartment money. Lower rent in Cleveland. True. That's what it's all about. How long was Joe living with Jane and he didn't know her age? Or maybe he did and... And he just was being nice about it, because she's like she she's like oh I don't look like I'm I'm turning forty because I'm turning fifty and you're being too nice about this. But they say that he's living there, so he was living there and he didn't know. I do think Joe's maybe an idiot. <laughs> I'm just going to put it out there. I think I think Joe might be. He's a dumb underwear model. It's, that's yeah, what it yeah. is, right? He becomes the little yeah. boxer boy at the end. <laughs> you know, boxer boy underwear. Lasts a lifetime plus 10 years. He's a sweetie. 
He's harmless. <laughs> Mostly harmless, anyway. I don't think enough attention was brought to the fact that, yeah, I think Joe is kind of a dum-dum. Yeah. Bless him. And here's the other <laughs> thing. I mean, I, I they put one line in that sort of made me buy the fact that Joe wasn't just there to sponge off of her when she said to Sam, I know that you want to get married and I know that you keep asking me, but I'm not right. Blah, blah, blah. But it's like she turned it around, implying that he's asked her at least once, if not more times, and she's told him, no, cool it. Because I always wondered, like, can we get Joe's perspective from the waiting room and see if he really is everything Neil is afraid he is? Mm. Well, I mean, maybe he was marrying her for all that money she seemed to have, so we don't know. <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. We only have Sam's point of view, Sam's rather enlightened point of view as a, a man who's in his mid-40s at this point, embracing someone who's just hitting 50, as opposed to a 25-year-old who might be tired of uh, being hungry and being out of work, looking to sink his fangs into some easy prey. I don't know. Is Joe a predator? Yeah, I think the fact that he was living with her and wanted to get married and all that were, were hints they were throwing in to say that this was sincere. I mean, and it could be a long con, you don't know. But I think that's like, you know, the shorthand in the script because obviously they don't have enough time to do all of that stuff. We've also got to assume that God, fate, time or whatever knows what he or she is doing. Yeah, I think like if uh, he was there to make sure that Joe didn't take advantage of her, that might have come up. Like, you know, oh, jo she becomes penniless because Joe took all her money or, you know, something like that. Yeah, that that probably would have come up in the original history if Al cared a goddamn wit about her <laughs> original history. <laughs> Which he obviously didn't. He just wants to make sure that, um, that Joe becomes the boxer boy. It's more important. And I, I just love the fact that Al still has a pair of boxer boy underwears. Did he say he still has it? Yeah, hey, I still got a pair of those. <laughs> How long does he have that underwear? Ew. Speaking as a man on the cusp of 50, you can keep him for a pretty long time. <laughs> yeah. If, if they last a lifetime and if you don't get very fat, uh, then yeah, wh why get rid of a good pair of underwear? I guess that was the, uh, that was the, the tagline for it, right? They last a lifetime? Plus 10 years. And here's, I'm going to give you TMI. I can think of, I think, three pairs of boxer shorts in my underwear drawer right now that I had when this episode aired originally. So I don't wear them anymore. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it, it is a thing. <laughs> are they, uh, they're also boxer boys? Uh, well, they're boxers. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a boy. <laughs> they last a lifetime. So they might not be boxer boys, but they're this boy's boxers. How's that? <laughs> And photos of them and more will be available on quantumleakpodcast.com <laughs> shortly after this release. No, no, no. That is a Patreon <laughs> bonus. I put my foot down on that. <laughs> <laughs> You're wearing them. Otherwise, you'd be nude. 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 Uh, one other thing I wanted to point out about this episode. Uh, uh, I really like the music choices in it. I know you, you, you didn't like them, Chris, or at least back then you didn't like them. Oh, no, no. Uh, I, I love almost all the songs in this episode now. <laughs> There's some of my favorite songs. I like White Rabbit, Someone Who Needs Me. They're all great songs. Yeah. Um, I got to tell you, um, I, I never liked most of the songs that Jane sung. Save a little prayer for you. Yeah, that's Gladys Knight. Forever. No, it's Dionne Warwick. Forever and ever. Ba -ba 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 -ba. But 
here's the weird thing. Um, like, like I mentioned at the top of the show, these were all soft rock hits when I was growing up, and Laura calls them Buick songs. And my wife, Laura, is my age, <laughs> and she, whenever a song like this comes on, she says, oh, it's a Buick song, because she remembers being stuck in the back of the car on like a long road trip, and these songs on the radio constantly. So she has a special disdain <laughs> for them as well. But in my years of collecting AM radios, old radios, Oftentimes, the only station I can get on these on these radios is one that plays songs like this from the 70s. So just to listen to the radios, I, I leave it locked on this one station, and I know all of these songs backwards and forwards now. So um, I have much more of an appreciation for them than I did now than I did back then. But I still don't like For Once in My Life. I've, I've never liked that song. <laughs> and, uh, and for the show to end on that. And I, I love Stevie Wonder. I think Stevie Wonder is a massive talent. But wow, if you're going to pick a freaking song, I guess it, it speaks to her. It speaks to, to her story and her journey in the episode. But boy, howdy, is that the worst Stevie Wonder song? Oh, man, I think it's the best. I love that song. Do you? It makes me think of The Nanny. <laughs> Because they used it in that show. But also a lot about this show, uh, this episode reminded me of, of that a bit because um, in the early 90s, around when this was airing, all of this stuff that they're wearing was trendy. Like the 60s was coming back, like the mini skirts and go-go boots like came back around. They say that like trends come back around every like 30 years. Yeah. So that would have been like 30 years to the day, like early 60s. You're talking, so you're talking about in the 90s. Yeah, there was a, a brief revival of 70s fashion in, in the 90s, if I recall. I wonder if Jean-Pierre like was able to find some of these pieces easier because they were coming back into fashion. But I like, I know Jean-Pierre is like very picky about like the types of fabrics. So, I mean, even if it came back into, into style, he could be like, that wasn't used in the sixties. No, thank you. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. We talk about Jean-Pierre cause I knew we were going to get onto the fashion in this episode. And one of the things that I remember from Mad Men, and of course, Mad Men is going to be, uh, it, this, this is so evocative of Mad Men to me. I was a huge fan of that series, but the costume designer in that series said, your, your real instinct is to go like full on what was just out in 1963 or whenever the show takes place, you know, from 61 to 68 or whatever. And he said, but you, you can't think like that because these are, you know, people who, have been buying clothes for years. So they're probably going to be wearing jackets that are, you know, nine or 10 years old. So you can't go for all that cutting edge fashion. I wonder if Jean-Pierre ever had the luxury of making that kind of consideration or if he just had to put them like, uh, like I wrote in that article that we did about him, like this shorthand, you just need this visual shorthand. And this, this screams that, that era. He um he did think about the fact that people would be buying costumes or not buying costume buying outfits um for you know a few years back depending on where they were um when you're talking about like the hip New York mod scene in this episode some people have like some more money and might be more contemporary with what was fashionable in that particular date but um and I don't remember where I read this if this was in the Quantum Leap book or just from talking to Jean-Pierre I don't know I just remember this was something from him um if it was like say 1953 south like um uh color of truth this is poor people in the south they're not going to be buying you know really contemporary stuff and that that episode is you know um uh, 10 years out from uh, from what's going on in this episode. But the outfits they're wearing would have been like late 40s, early 50s, because that's 
you know, people are going to save what they have. <laughs> and I know that w- that was a thought that he would have when he was dressing people. Where are they? What circumstances are they in? Can they afford this? Where are they in this time and place? That's amazing. I mean, I would never would have considered something like that had I not read that article. Mm. And um, the fact that it's ever present in uh, a costume designer's mind is fascinating to me. That was a big part of um, the movie that he was nominated for an Oscar for. Um, the Blue Lagoon? Shoot, Somewhere in Time? Somewhere in Time. Christopher Reeve? Yeah, let me make sure. I'm going to feel so bad if I got the name of the movie wrong. <laughs> I think it is Somewhere in Time. Yeah, okay. So the main plot of this movie, Christopher Reeve goes back in time via just thinking about a time. So it's some weird wonky time travel logic. He goes back in time and falls in love with this woman, um, Jane Seymour. Jane Seymour, yep. And he is a contemporary guy from early 80s. And when he goes back there, he just buys like a suit that he thinks would work for that time period. But it's like old-fashioned and fuddy-duddy for that time because he like got the, the wrong decade and it's sort of ill-fitting suit. And so if you were looking at this and you didn't know period pieces, you would think like, oh, okay, this is just like an old-timey suit. But there's just all these little details that like date it for that time. And I just think that's so fascinating that that was things that Jean-Pierre thinks about when he's doing costuming for things because there's just such subtle differences between fashions that you wouldn't think about it now, but if you were looking at something from like 10, 20 years ago, someone was dressed like that, you'd be like, oh, that's kind of dated. Mm. But 100 years from now, people might not think about that. Right, because it's just a 10-year difference, and to them, it's like minuscule. Yeah. And now that you mentioned other time travel properties, I have to be time travel nerd. I do believe that that movie was based on the book Time and Again by Jack Finney, which is a wonderful book. And the way the character travels in time in that book is that he sequesters himself in a building in Manhattan called the Dakota, which hasn't changed since it was built. So you can get like original 13 room apartments. I mean, Yoko Ono lives there. It's a huge, old, Mm. grand building that is for the uber rich. And what he does is he just sequesters himself in one of those apartments and lives the life of someone someone might, would have lived in, say, like 1865 or wherever he's traveling back to until his he journeys to that place. So, wow. yeah, and that was sort of the conceit of of the time travel in that book. And I believe that I, I don't – I have seen the movie, but it's been so long I don't remember. But I think they used a similar kind of logic – for the time travel in in the film version, yeah, he 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 dresses and acts and and sequesters himself and then like imagines he's there and then he's there and yeah, that's a big part of the movie. It's like as long as you are thinking and acting and and being in that time, you're there. And if you think about the future, then you're back. Yeah, then then it knocks you out. And yeah. um, I I can recommend that book wholeheartedly, time and again. It's a wonderful book. That sounds great. Do not, under any circumstances, read the sequel from time to time. It is a giant pile of crap. There's a sequel? How, though? Does it end like the movie? Uh, I honestly don't remember. I I would have to watch the movie again. Because the movie, I don't think a sequel is common. (laughs) (laughs) There's a sequel. There's a sequel, and it is a useless sequel uh, to the book. To the book. And I think that Jack Finney is a wonderful writer, but he can wallow in nostalgia and self-pity like no one else. And all of his worst (laughs) instincts are on grand display in From Time to Time. So... 
Anyway. Matt, if you've never seen Somewhere in Time as a time travel enthusiast and Quantum Leap fan, uh, I recommend that you check it out. Um, Jean-Pierre's costumes are, are fantastic, and it's it's really well acted. Superman's in it. Mm-hmm. I will do. I've, I've just literally just been um, favoriting the, the book and the film. Um, so I will check both of these out. So there you go, listeners. You have some new time travel things to keep you occupied between episodes of the Quantum Leap podcast. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I know that we've gotten off the off the rails a little bit. Um, interesting, interesting cul-de-sac, interesting detour. But uh, do you guys have any further observations about the plays, the thing? Uh, yeah, I uh, I like the look of this episode. Uh, I think that it's really fun. I think the actors were having fun. It ju- it just falls into a category of of episodes where it's just like they're they're kind of in a safe place right now. So. Uh, it's not the first one that I think of, but I, I think it's like a pretty solid comedy episode. All right. How about you, Matt? Yeah, I I feel the same. It's, yeah, it, it's a good episode. It definitely, for me, it has grown on me a lot over the years. It's um, it's not an obvious one, but uh, yeah, I, I love it now. It, it's fun and everyone seems to be enjoying themselves. All right, and I'm going to say that I have done somewhat of a 180 on the episode. I don't have the disdain for it that uh, looms so large in my brain up until the rewatch. And uh, at this point, I think it's fine Quantum Leap. It's not my Quantum Leap, but, you know, I'm not the only one watching. Even though I'm, you know, somewhat more age-appropriate to the, the protagonist in the episode, it still doesn't speak to me, but it's perfectly serviceable if you're into that kind of thing. That's that's my take on it. So. <laughs> All right, guys. So awesome discussion about the plays, the thing, and not one of us got nude. Nude. <laughs> oh, we all kept our clothes we did, on. But although, did we? Did we? Hmm. Did you keep your clothes on? Why don't well, you tell us if you're listening at home? If you would like to tell us what you think about the plays, the thing, you can contact us by phone at seven zero seven eight four seven six six eight two. You can email us at quantumleappodcast at gmail You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at quantumleappod. And as always, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. And if you, like me, have a pair of boxers that you've been holding on to for at least two and a half decades, send us a picture. We want to see it. Just prove to me I'm not strange and weird. (laughs) (laughs) Matt, what's next? Well, next, uh, a bit of a change of pace. It's running for honor. I see what you did there with the whole change of pace. It, that wasn't even meant to be a pun. <laughs> I, I don't. I, hey. I, I, I was trying because last time I introduced this with a joke about nudity, <laughs> and I couldn't think of a joke to lead into quite a serious episode. So it's a change of pace. I yeah, totally unintentional pun. Sorry, guys. <laughs> uh, I'm calling shenanigans. I think that was uh, intentional <laughs> and brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> 
innovative. Innovative. Thank you. <laughs> I was practicing how to say that. I can now say it innovative. But if you notice, the director said innovative. 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 Yes. yes. So. Innovative. I am British. Mm. Yes, we, 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 we've cottoned to that fact, sir. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes. So. I say tomato, you say tomato. That's right. Hey, you want to know how old I was when this episode came out? <laughs> Shut up. I was almost three. Minus what? <laughs> Minus what? Almost I gotta three. say, it really resonated with me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here's the funny thing is, you're still too young to relate to this episode. That's the horror of it all. Well, no, I'm older than Joe would be. I'm 29. But <laughs> I was, You're under 30. According to Matt's 12-year-old eyes, you're still okay. Yes. <laughs> Everyone's old in this episode. <laughs> was how I sounded. How did you know? <laughs> Everyone's old. <laughs> this episode's naff. Was it naff, Matt? That probably, I probably did say it was naff. <laughs> it was totally pants. It, it, <laughs> pants was a few years later. Pants was more 95, 96. Oh, is that, is it, is it a more contemporary slang, Pants. It, it was about three or four years after this, I would say. I wouldn't say contemporary okay. to now, but yeah. Not contemporary now, but... No, no, but yeah. Okay. Pants was a few years later. Naff, definitely. 92, 93. Wow, you know your UK slang. Hey, I know enough people from the UK, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, I think I'm going to wrap this one up, guys. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, until next time, I have been Christopher D. Philippus. I've been Allison Pants Pregler. And I've been Nude Matt Dale. <laughs> nude! <laughs> and hopefully you don't find the show totally naff. See you next time. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap podcast, hosted by Allison, Matt, and Chris, with voice talent and contributions from Hayden McQueenie and Zoe Dean. Visit us at quantumleappodcast.com. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. The Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, Christopher DeFilippis, and Allison Pregler. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap Podcast is Albert Burge. Juan Miro, Christopher DeFilippis, and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. Morgan Felden is the producer. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. Please visit Baronspace.com for this and other amazing content. The Quantum Leap podcast is a Baron Space production. No!